This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, everyone for joining us. Welcome to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi, the College Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the show that explains the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we have a great show today. We have a great guest, Dr. Holly Ordway, will be bringing on in a minute to talk about Literature and the Arts in Worldview Development. So that is going to be a great topic today. But I do want to remind people that they can check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. There you will find archived shows that go back quite a few years, quite a few shows there. We are working on a new website for future, so we'll get more news to you on that um, as it gets closer. But in the meantime, you can always contact us through email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's email at evidenceforfaith.com or the Facebook page that Kirk oversees. And if you like podcasts, you can find us on iTunes or on Double Twist. And also check out the Rosho Christie website, which is roshochristie.org. I have to admit, I can't keep up with this new uh, technology. What's Double Twist? Oh, Double Twist is like iTunes for the Android market. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you don't podcast, right? No, not really. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you need um, some kind of music player like an iPod or some of the smartphones. And, you know, then you link to one of these software services that is going to feed you podcasts. And it's kind of nice because you just tell it what you want to listen to, pick out some shows on different topics. I listen to uh, atheist podcasts. I listen to Christian apologetics podcasts. I listen to real estate investing podcasts, things like that. And uh, you listen to one. It knows. It keeps track that you've listened to it, and it downloads the next one and plays that for you. So with all the driving that I do, you know, about, gosh, an hour to two hours per day. So uh, I listen to podcasts all the time. That's one of the ways I stay up on what the atheist world is thinking about. And the other way is to listen to any of the TV networks. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we've got a quote for the week that we are stealing once again from Apologetics 315, the great apologetics website. This is from C.S. Lewis, very appropriate for today, as you'll see when we get into our topic, and probably a quote that we have already done because we love C.S. Lewis so much on this program. He said, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy must be answered. The learned life, then, is for some a duty. That is from C.S. Lewis. Well, let's see. Kirk, there is a news item 
this is, uh, I don't know, surprising and then yet not surprising when one thinks about the way culture is headed. And this is from Yahoo News. I have no idea how reliable Yahoo News is. Um, I don't know if some Yahoo wrote it. <laughs> but anyway, it says that 50% of young Christians support legalizing marijuana. Doesn't do you say think? why? Why? No, it doesn't say that. Okay. It doesn't say that. It says, a recent poll showing that a slim majority of Americans now support the legalization of marijuana made national headlines. And now the pro-pot movement appears to have taken another step forward with a survey showing that nearly half of all young Christians in the U.S. also favor legalizing pot. <laughs> so now that's uh, self-identified Christians. So uh, it's ages 18 through 29. And, you know, you have to take self-identified Christians with a grain of salt. Um, you know, there have been, I think Barna has done quite a bit of poll research showing that if you do self-identified Christians, you don't get much difference from national numbers on lots of things like attitudes towards uh, divorce, uh, homosexuality, um, abortion, those things. But if you ask the person not are you a Christian? But if you ask them, do you read your Bible every day? Do you go to church every week? Do you pray more than once per day? Those kinds of questions, then you get totally different results. The things, information like the uh, divorce rate is something like, in those people, it's something like 8%, you know, compared to 50% for the rest of society. So, um, so I don't know how much stock to put in this, but this is from Robert P. Jones, CEO of an organization called PPRI, the group that conducted the the survey. But, uh, you know, I guess it's difficult for people. Maybe this will be something we can ask our guests, but I think it's difficult for people as they begin to lose their footing in a Christian worldview. It's difficult for them to figure out how to tell the difference between right and wrong. They don't really know. You know, if they, if you're living in a society that has already gone through the rational process of determining right and wrong in different situations and society supports that and you grow up in that society, okay, so you believe those things. But then as that knowledge begins to fade away, begins to, uh, you know, be in fewer and fewer hands, uh, then as more and more people come along, you know, they haven't thought through these things. They don't even really know how to tell right from wrong. So all these things are, you know, why not permit it? Why not just make up things um, on your own, basically? Yeah, well, geez. And talking about all those Christians approving of using marijuana, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, a lot of atheists think, think that Christians act high and mighty. It gives them another reason to believe that. <laughs> Oh, oh, hi, and my very funny, very funny. Okay, <laughs> it took you a minute like to get that one, huh? <laughs> yeah, I like your jokes. Well, we have a great guest. Let me pull out her bio here. This is really nice. Dr. Holly Ordway is a poet, author, and Christian apologist on the faculty of Houston Baptist University, where she is chair of the Department of Apologetics and director of the MA in Apologetics program. She holds a Ph.D. in English from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, an MA in English from 
University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We know a famous person who is there as a professor. And an MA in apologetics from Biola University, my alma mater. She is also a regular speaker on imaginative and literature apologetics with special attention to the work of C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams. She blogs on literature, culture, and apologetics at hierapraxis.com. Welcome to Evidence for Faith, Holly Ordway. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So did I pronounce that right, hieropraxis? You did now. It's actually a made-up word. Um, I I was thinking creatively and not thinking about how it would sound on the radio. And it's a a combination of two Greek roots. Um, Hiero uh, means holy and or sacred. We see that in words like hieroglyphics, uh, sacred writing. Um, and it praxis means practice or living out. So it's the idea of, of exploring the living out of the Christian faith, the living out of the Christian worldview. Um, and as it has unfolded, really the exploration of that uh, through the arts and through literature and culture. Oh, wonderful. And very apropos. And you were not always someone who was living out the Christian faith. You started out as an atheist, I understand. Yes, Um or to be more accurate, it depends where we start from. Uh, we start from the very beginning. I, I grew up um, more or less religiously neutral. My family was not overtly Christian, but not hostile. So I grew up in a, a somewhat, well, slightly pagan, <laughs> somewhat neutral uh, worldview, but without being taught anything about Christianity whatsoever, one way or the other. And so when I did get to college, um, all I had really were some fairly shaky stereotypes of Christians, um, a few hints and glimmers that I'd gotten from my reading, and going as I did to um, secular public universities, I encountered a worldview that, that held that Christianity was at best outmoded and at worst complete nonsense uh, that rational people didn't believe. And so without any real sense of, of the opposite side of it, without any sense of, of what Christianity really had to offer, I thought, oh, I guess it really must be just a, just another, you know, myth in the negative sense of the word, not in the Lewisian sense, but just another story that people made up before they knew better and ended up becoming very much an atheist um, into my 20s and to the beginning of my 30s. And then, then I had to turn around. Mm. Yeah, it's... It's hard, I think, for for people who have maybe grown up as Christians to think how secular people could really think that way about Christianity. But I guess if we sort of think of how we might think about uh, maybe friends of ours who have come from India and are Hindus, and we might sort of, you know, realize that they're Hindus and, you know, think, okay, well, that's nice for them. But, you know, Hinduism, uh, no, I don't think so. That's actually a very good comparison because we might think, oh, Hinduism, aren't, isn't there something about sacred cows? Oh, that sounds silly. And dismiss it, for instance, right. without ever actually asking a Hindu friend, what really do you believe and why? And with no pressing reason to investigate it, why why should we? And one of the things that I try to tell um, people who have grown up to be Christians and who have, as you as you know, a difficulty with, with imaginatively entering into the atheist worldview, one of the things I really try to make clear is that atheism is a perfectly rational worldview. Um, it's I believe it's completely wrong, right. but it's not it's not irrational, and I think that's yeah. really important. It's coherent. Are, it makes sense to those who hold it. 
Yeah, and it's not perfectly consistent, but if you don't have a better alternative, it is, in fact, a reasonable explanation of the way the world works. And I think we don't gain, we don't do any good if we try to pretend that somehow atheism is simply a, oh, I hate God and therefore I don't believe he exists, which is arguably the case with some folks. But I prefer to err on the side of, of respecting that worldview and saying, well, you know, certainly for me, I genuinely, intellectually, simply did not think that there was any, any supernatural, any divine being. I didn't think it was a particularly happy worldview. I didn't particularly right. care for it, but right. my preference doesn't change the way the world is. <laughs> right. Now, I, I don't you, – you said something that caught my ear. I don't want to let it slide by unmentioned. You said you were talking about how we might speak with someone like a Hindu, and you said what, what you believe and why you believe it because I think a lot of times – we don't ask people that. I mean, I know myself, I do in my line of work, I meet a lot of foreigners um, and, you know, they've been in the United States for a long time, but they still, for the most part, grew up in, uh, you know, Egypt or India or Saudi Arabia. And I will many times, you know, as kind of a, a witnessing opportunity, I will ask them about their religion. I will, you know, get into religious discussions with them to try to look for a way, a, a common ground um, that I can share Christianity with them. But that really intrigues me that I ought to be asking them, why do you believe what you do? And get the conversation going along those wise. Did, did, when you were an atheist, did you ever ask Christians why they believed what they believed? Not not at first, because for a couple of reasons. One is that I really didn't know any Christians to talk to in that way. Um, now, I'm sure that there were Christians that I knew, but somehow I managed to not notice. Um, and the ones that I did become aware of uh, tended to be the pushy, obnoxious ones who would say things like, and this just, this just kills me, so if you died tomorrow, where would you end up? <laughs> and my response would be, well, if I died tomorrow, I would be dissolved into my component atoms and my consciousness would be extinguished. <laughs> it kind of stopped the, 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 the uh, evangelistic dialogue. <laughs> right. So unfortunately, I didn't meet a lot of people who fell into what I think is a really important middle ground, which is to say Christians who are open but not pushy about their faith. People who you become aware that they are Christians by things they mention, by mentioning going to church, by you know referring to the things that they do, referring to their faith, right. but who are not not dropping Bible verses into every other sentence or saying, God told me to tell you right. yada yada. Right. I think there really needs to be a middle ground there because I, until I was in my, my early 30s and I ended up um, at a fencing club where my coach was Christian and I discovered through a natural kind of conversational flow that my coach was Christian, I really didn't know any Christians who fell into the, okay, these are serious Christians, but they're not going to corner me and shove a Bible into my hands. Mm -hmm. Now, did you have your doctorate in literature at this point? I did, yes. Um, and actually, this is one of the, the ways in which I've, I've ended up doing what I do now as an academic, which is to explore literature and the imagination as it pertains to apologetics. Because I eventually did encounter 
propositional arguments for the existence of God came out of these conversations that I had with my fencing coach, where I finally had a Christian whom I could talk to and ask these these questions of, and I ended up becoming um, rationally convinced that the that the cosmological evidence for a, you know a, a creator was mm. solid. I ended up becoming convinced that the historical evidence for the incarnation and the the resurrection were solid. And I became convinced of the intellectual, historical, evidential credibility of Christianity to the point that I thought, well, this is something that actually happened. I need to, I need to act on this. But I've come in, in the past few years to really realize that my, the fact that I did have a doctorate in literature played a role in a way that I didn't realize. Um, one I realized fairly quickly is that as a, you know, as an academic, I knew how to do research. And so, and I knew how to assess sources. So when I was doing my, you know, my looking into the, these questions of, of Christianity, once I finally addressed them, I was able to do my homework. I was able to read academic sources on both sides of the question, because that's what academics do. They do their job right. So that was one way that my academic training helped me a great deal. But the thing that I didn't realize until I reflect on it much later was that the study of literature and the imaginative engagement with Christian literature, or more precisely, with good literature written by faithful Christians, whether or not it was overtly Christian, that that was what had, to borrow C.S. Lewis's phrase, baptized my imagination such that I was willing and indeed interested in exploring questions of faith uh, in the first place. Yeah, the it, it sort of made it possible. It was within the realm of consideration for you because you had been exposed in some way to uh, those kinds of ideas? Yes, and not so much, I think, ideas, but worldview. And you mentioned that earlier, and I think it's significant. Because I, I think that one of the most compelling um, reasons to hold that Christianity is true, if not the most compelling, is that it is a worldview that has extraordinary explanatory power. It makes sense um, of, of things. I'll quote C.S. Lewis again, um, his famous line from um, his, uh, his essay, uh, His Theology Poetry. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen not only do I see it, but by it, I see everything else. I love that quote. I say it all the time to students when I'm teaching Sunday school and things. That is so good. And well, if you're, that, sorry. if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking with Dr. Holly Ordway, professor of literature and apologetics at Houston Baptist University on the topic of literature and the arts in worldview development. Holly, can you tell us a little bit about your work at HBU and, and uh, what's going on there? I'm, we've been following. The, the, the show has had some interest in the professors that have joined there and the new program. So it's great to be talking to the director of it. Can you tell us a little bit about it? We are very excited about this program. It is brand new. We've just started it this semester. And the Master of Arts in Apologetics at Houston Baptist University is unique in that it is specifically a degree focused on cultural apologetics. And so we are aware that there is a a definite need for people to engage in more propositionally focused um, philosophical, historical, we might call classical apologetics. There are excellent programs that do it. Biola, for instance, does a very good job with that. 
But we really felt that there was a need for training apologists to go into, an, I think, a very untapped and very important field, which is engaging with culture and culture on all levels. Um, and so our mission, in a sense, could be summed up as saying that we want to teach our students to um, understand culture, to understand why you know, why is the culture the way that it is? How did we get here? Looking at history, looking at the development of literature and philosophy and the arts, we want to help them understand our culture so that they can engage with it, not simply critiquing it. Now, critiquing is important, but we also need to engage with culture. We need to create culture so that ultimately we can transform it. And so that's one of the reasons that we have we have the core elements of, for instance, scripture and theology and philosophy of religion um, is about a third of the program. But we have another third approximately that's history, history of Christian thought through ancient and medieval and modern times. And we have another third that's uh, imaginative apologetics, um, uh, literature as apologetics, which um, is my specialty. We have an uh, entire um, course on C.S. Lewis and the management of apologetics. It's actually taught by our newest faculty hire, Dr. Michael Ward from Oxford University. Yeah, I was going to ask you about him. Oh, yes. Well, I'm, and, and it's another a film course. But, yes, we are really thrilled about having Dr. Ward on board. So if you have – oh, so you said film too, though. So students who might be interested in using their love of film to share the gospel and the Christian worldview, um, they might be interested in this course also. Absolutely, because one of the things that we want to do is we want to recruit uh, people who not – we know that some people want to become teaching apologists who will go out and do um, teaching in the churches, ministry, minister on college campuses, for instance, for Ratio Christi. But we also want to um, educate people who will be creative producers, people who will write poetry, write stories, who will make films, who will make visual arts. And HBU is the just the best place to do that because we have a fantastic fine arts facility um, that any of our students can use. And we have just started a new uh, cinema school. So filmmakers who want to change the world for Christ through film can come and get an apologetics degree at a school that's committed to supporting filmmaking on as part of our campus. Wonderful. Oh, you know, there's another – it made me think of another professor that you ought to steal. I think it's Doug Guyvett. He does – he teaches film uh, from a Christian apologetics um, perspective. But anyway, okay. So, well, <clears throat> food for thought there. If I well, got the prof- yeah, if I got the professor's name right. <laughs> well, but, I'll tell uh, you another thing we're excited about is yeah. that we're um we're and this is this has to this pertains to uh, to Michael Ward, whom you you saw the press release. Um, one of the things we're really excited about is we're also going global because Dr. Ward is um, he's. Uh, senior research fellow at Blackfriars Hall in Oxford, uh, Oxford University, mm-hmm. and he's going to be directing uh, our new C.S. Lewis Center um, for the study specifically of Lewis and of imaginative apologetics, and that's going to be based in Oxford. And we will be able to send our students over for study abroad to be able to work with apologetics with one of the world's best C.S. Lewis experts and an expert in imaginative apologetics uh, in Oxford. Sounds- Sounds wonderful. So what will the students do? Will they spend a whole semester there or a few weeks or how, how will that work? 
Um, well, we are still working out the details, but certainly because we're going to be um, offering the program 100% online starting in September of the fall of uh, 2014. So next fall, we will have a fully 100% distance program, no residency requirement whatsoever, which means that students can go to Oxford for the semester through our study abroad connection um, and um, take their take the rest of their classes online and work one-on-one with Dr. Ward about C.S. Lewis and imaginative apologetics. Wonderful. Now, there's some other – I remember reading about another C.S. Lewis Oxford program. Is that um, the one this professor is running or is that a different ministry? I'm not sure if you know about it. I think you're probably referring to the Kilns, um, which is C.S. Lewis's home, which currently runs as a study center. And I've actually been a scholar in residence there. It's, you know, they've done a really great job with restoring and preserving Lewis's home and using it um, as a launching point for various programming. Um, that's a little bit different from what we're doing. We're, mm-hmm. we're doing the more purely academic and scholarly um, approach. Um, so this, there's definitely room for a lot, a lot of work to be done and a lot of collaboration. Wonderful. Well, Kirk, you're a big fan of uh, C.S. Lewis. You think you might want to uh, take this program so you can get up there to Oxford and study him? Yeah, it sounds interesting to me. I don't know if I'd want to go over to all the way over to England, but yeah, the the course sounds great. It does, doesn't it? One of the first books I read after I became a Christian in my mid-20s was Mere Christianity, and that was one of the books that really... Uh, made me a C.S. Lewis fan and made me understand that, uh, as Holly said, that Christianity makes rational sense. Yeah, it was actually the book that led me to the Lord, actually, even having grown up in, you know, in the church, but really being an agnostic uh, atheist and uh, you know, just interested in Christianity, uh, sort of in case it happened to be true, maybe, if there was any way to know that, and... Uh, uh, so reading Mere Christianity is uh, what saved me. Now, Holly, you also – you're going to be teaching on C.S. Lewis, but and we have introduced the audience repeatedly to C.S. Lewis for obvious reasons. But you also uh, teach about Charles Williams. So now introduce our audience to Charles Williams. Sure. Well, Charles Williams is, he's one of the Inklings, which is the group of Christian um, uh, academics who would meet – in uh, Maudlin College or in the Eagle and Child uh, in Oxford to read from their work, to talk, to to collect, to uh, to critique each other's manuscripts. The most famous ones are the four um, the four big names: um, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, it's another one of the Inklings, um, Owen Barfield, um, and and Charles Williams. And I actually don't teach specifically on Williams in the uh, in the apologetics program. He's more of a specialty research interest of mine. Um, as one of the lesser-known Inklings who, who really did some interesting work in exploring um, particularly the nature of, of the body of Christ, the way that we are all interconnected. Um, and I think that's an important insight as we try to present what Christianity actually is about, because Williams um, points out, and I think um, very, very aptly, that we are all, um, he uses the term coherent. We all um, depend on each other in ways that we can't get out of. Even the most stubbornly autonomous person, um, you know, like I didn't, I didn't weave the clothes that I'm wearing. Um, I didn't build this uh, computer that's <laughs> that's mm. using my my voice. 
and even at a the most you know go off and live by yourself in the woods kind of person um we did not create ourselves we were born um and we were literally dependent on co-inherent with our mother um uh, in the womb Mm-hmm. And so that's an insight into the way that all human beings um, are involved with each other. And I think that insight helps us to see what it means when Jesus talks about being united with him the way that he is united with the Father. This is not some strange thing that's being you know, added on to our human experience, it's a restoration um, of what we were always made to be, but that has become disordered. Mm, interesting, interesting. Well, I guess we should jump into this idea of being disordered and what the heck is going wrong with society. You heard the news announcement that 50% of Christian young people now think that it's appropriate to legalize marijuana. Um, what's going on with our... I think I might push back a little bit to start with, um, and you might be surprised. I think we have to make sure we don't read onto things like that, assumptions that might not be warranted, Mm -hmm. because there are certain assumptions about marijuana that are different from, say, crack cocaine, um, because marijuana, I think, does have legitimate medical usages, for instance, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that currently are not legal or or very difficult to use. And so when you ask someone the question, should you legalize marijuana, um, the answer that they give may or may not reflect anything to do with the abuse of drugs. It may be a sense of, well, this is potentially could be abused, but it has a lot of benefit. And so on the whole, I think it ought to be legal and let people judge for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's inherently an anti-Christian stance. Um, I don't know whether it's wise or not. I actually don't particularly have a view one way or the other about the legalization of, of marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, I think with issues like that, it can be a little bit easy to get caught up in in not root issues. Where I actually would would really peg the root issues would have to do with sexual ethics because that's something that I think does have profound outworkings in our culture and and disorders things considerably. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's follow through on that then. Um, what, you know, um, you mentioned disorders. So let's build on that. Why is the idea of um, sexual order and sexual disorder important to Christianity and to society as a whole? I think it comes down, if, when we come down to it, the the image of God in us and how are we, how are we made to be. And so... We are made to be in relationship, and we are made to be male and female in relationship. And really, if you, scripture's relatively clear about this, um, mm-hmm. in that, you know, regardless of whether you draw conclusions from science, silence, uh, silence or not, I think you can definitely see that the assumption and pattern throughout scripture is that it is marriage of a man and a woman. And this is a repeated pattern. We have Adam and Eve, um, you know, we have the Holy Family. We have Joseph um, as the as the chaste um, spouse of Mary, um, and so we have this this image of male and female. And through the Church's history, we we have the image of Christ as the bridegroom and the Church as the bride. And the celebration of the Eucharist um, is a celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's wedding imagery. 
And so mm. we have a sense that the union of male and female um, is in some way part of how we were made to be. And that the union of male and female, um, when a man and a woman come together in marriage, the, na- the natural result of that will be children. And I think that one of the... I think one of the root causes for sexual disorder in our current day has to has to go back to contraception um, in 1930s because that's where we start getting this severing of the connections between children and marriage and then between sexual activity and marriage and children. And I think mm. from that point on, we increasingly get this idea of sexual activity as being recreational. It's not having to do with life. It's not having to do with God's gift of life to a married couple. Right, and once you right. have that, once you've decoupled sex in that way, I think it's a pretty... <laughs> It's almost inevitable that it becomes a recreational activity and attempts to control it become ineffectual. And I think right. that idea of radical autonomy is, is underlying a lot of the problems we have today with promiscuity, which is a massive problem, and with abortion, um, which is, I think, the greatest evil of, of this century. Mm. That if you have radical autonomy over your body then that tends to include the life that might be within your body. It's, it's a fairly consistent outworking of the position. And so I think that in order to address it, we actually need to go back and say, well, are we in fact radically autonomous or have we been made to be in relationship? Right, right. Well, let's. Uh, I want to come to that. For those who are just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rosho Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are speaking with Dr. Holly Ordway about literature and the arts in worldview development. Now, let's hold that thought about um, this decay and... Um, order and disorder in uh, moral concepts because I wanted I had thought of a, a one last question about the program the apologetics program I was thinking that you know for our atheist listeners who you know probably not personally interested in apologetics programs but they might be wondering why is it that there are all these new apologetics programs developing over the past 10, 20 years or so? Uh, what is going on? Is it just that Christians are so frightened by the advance of um, atheism and secularism that they're trying to regroup and retaliate? Um, well, I don't think so. Um, I actually <laughs> I actually think of it as a, as a recovery of a position that we had really for for centuries for millennia really. Mm. Because if you look back at the um, the founding for instance of universities, if you go back and look at Europe and the uh, you know the the universities that were founded in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries. These are um, universities founded um, by Christians for Christians, um, and theology was the queen of the sciences. That's right. Um, and so there is a sense in which the dedicated study of the world um, is fundamentally a Christian endeavor. Now, I want to qualify that. I don't mean that non-Christians can't study and, and rigorously so. Absolutely, yes. But there's a particular attitude towards the world that makes it um, more natural for Christians to do this kind of work. And that is that all things were created by God, and he called them good. 
And he gave us um, both reason and imagination. Um, we are made in his image. And so it is natural for us to want to learn about this world that God made to give glory to him. And mm-hmm. so it really makes sense from a Christian worldview. Of course, we want to explore the world and understand it um, and write and do literature and, and, and teach. So in that sense, and all that's imbued with a deep-seated Christian faith, um, and also a sense that we don't need to be afraid of studying because the world is governed by a good God who is who is who is reason Himself. We don't have to be afraid of evil spirits because the name of Christ we can call on. Mm. So, in that sense, um, Christian education is education, and I think it's only it's in the Enlightenment. I'm a medievalist, sort of by my my original. Um, academic preparation. So the Enlightenment divides up um, reason and imagination in a way that's deleterious to both, and falsely divides also faith and reason, which is a false false separation. Right, right. It's an atheistic view of things. Yeah, and it's unfortunately one that many Christians buy into, this idea that faith is something that's my personal life, um, maybe held very sincerely, and then reason is what I use for other things. And that actually is, is not true. Um, they're, they're integrated. They're not separable. So I think that the, um, and in America, for instance, the, um, some of the evangelistic revivals, the, the, um, the Great Awakening tended to slant more towards pure emotionalism. Right. which was a response to the excessive rationalism, the scientism of the Enlightenment, a quite a natural response, but harmful in one sense, because it further pulled apart the emotions and the reason, when in fact, emotions well understood, well nourished and well guided, um, actually help us to make rational decisions. We should love our family, and that love of family and friends should guide our decisions. It's not an either or. So I think that the renewed interest in apologetics is really a recovery of a position that we we left or we lost um, and shouldn't have. Right, right. And is becoming more and more popular, I think, because of uh, so many good arguments for things like the existence of God and, you know, that you spoke about in, in your conversion. So, okay, well, that was a little hiatus from what we were talking about. So let's try and, and mentally bring everybody back where we were, we were going down this idea of moral order and moral disorder. And I think C.S. Lewis speaks about this when he talks about the difference between right and wrong um, being that wrong is in many senses trying to do right in the wrong way or trying to do things that are good in the wrong way. So from a Christian worldview, we know that sex is good. It's a good thing. God made it. Um, God actually, I think, wants us to have sex in the context of a marriage relationship in the right way. So one way that we can determine right and wrong is are we doing the good that we think we want to do in the right way. I mean, you know, Hitler, uh, as far as I know, thought he was doing something good. And when someone steals to bring home money for, you know, their hungry children, they're trying to do something good. They're just doing it in the wrong way. So go ahead. 
No, I think that's a good insight because in that sense, um, when we think about good and evil, uh, it's not that there is some sort of equal and opposite evil to good. Um, right. It's rather that there is only – there is good and then there is the the distortion of it. Right. So I think that if more Christians understood this as part of the Christian worldview, um, they might be – you know, we wouldn't see um, – are young people, you know, supporting things like homosexuality or thinking that divorce is okay? Um, and for my part on this uh, use of marijuana issue, you know, I think that uh, God, that pleasure is good, but not all ways of seeking pleasure are good. And God made us to be sober, rational beings. So when we fight against that when we inebriate ourselves, when we try to kill the pain of, of life. Um, you know, then we're going against uh, the good that he's given. We're trying to find that good in the wrong way. So that'd be my view. If we, if we had more Christians who could think um, in those kinds of terms, I think they wouldn't have so much trouble uh, with seeing the moral issues of, you know, abortion and um, divorce and things like this that we've been talking about. I, I agree because I think one of the things that we need um, in our contemporary Christian culture is a more robust appreciation and transmittal of of the good of what it is, all of the good that God has made for us to enjoy, and what that actually looks like. I think too often it's so easy, especially when when trying to present things to, to young people. Um, to make it sound like God just has a list of, of don't do this, you know, don't right. don't show too much skin, um, don't you know, don't go too far on on a date. It's like all these, you know, don't do X, Y, and Z, but without a sense of okay, the reason why you don't want to do X, Y, and Z is that those are actually taking you in the wrong direction. They may seem to deliver some sort of pleasure and and legitimately offer some small pleasure that actually goes in a direction away from the fullness that God has. And that's why I think, for instance, really robustly teaching um, a really high view of marriage. Um, you know, I, I think John Paul II has done a marvelous work with the theology of the body and really robustly calling for a view of, of marriage as as a glorious thing, not just something you kind of get into to keep yourself out of trouble. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And the same with, you know, the same with, for instance, avoiding drugs. It's not a question so much of, okay, well, if you do X, Y, or Z, then automatically, if you ever smoke a cigarette, you know, you'll be doomed. Actually, that's more the secular view. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> it's really funny. Like, cigarettes are pretty much like, you know, taboo. That's right. So, You're you an know, evil person. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, you know, smoking a cigarette is you know going to be harmful to your health. Will it kill you instantly? No. We should not exaggerate. You know, generations of people have harmed their health with cigarettes, and you know it's okay. It, it didn't cause the world to end. But God actually wants us to have a full and robust enjoyment of of all that He gave us, including our bodies. We, we don't just, we're not just souls stuck in a body until we finally get to be with Jesus. No, he gave us bodies. And when we have the new heavens and the new earth, we will have bodies again. Right. Glorified bodies. And that's just fantastic. So what we do with our bodies actually matters. Right. And I think as apologists, really need to be careful against a, a really persistent strain of Gnosticism 
mm-hmm. in the contemporary Christian dialogue that just says, well, just don't do certain bad things with your body because that will, you know, be offensive to God, but doesn't recognize the fully incarnational reality of our faith. Mm-hmm. Now, um, this idea then, so we've talked about the Christian worldview versus the secular worldview and its differences on the moral issues like abortion, homosexuality, divorce, things like that. But um, let's address this idea of how literature and the arts specifically plays into the development of these ideas or the transmittal, I guess, into society. My my familiarity with this comes from the work of Francis Schaeffer and his outlining of Basically, I think he starts with the Romans and the Greeks and talks about how as new ideas came down from the philosophers, they were transmitted to the public through the arts, through literature, through drama, um, uh, and through yeah, art, I, you I know, music. Question. And uh, that society began to change because of this process. Is that... Uh, part of what's going to be studied at HBU is that um, you know an area that that you'll be teaching on. Um, absolutely, this is really central to our work um, at HBU. Uh, so we have, you know, as I said, we have these three courses that are specifically tracking the history of Christian thought, ancient, um, medieval. Actually, my my specialty here will be the medieval thought and then modern. But even in our other courses, in Dr. Ward's um, Lewis course, in my literature and apologetics course. Um, and the film visual arts course, we really want to look at the way in which literature and the arts, as you said, transmits um, worldview. And I think the key here, and this is central to my own work um, as an academic, is that we have to break away from the idea that using literature to present the Christian worldview somehow means smuggling the Christian message in under cover of whatever it is. No, mm. that doesn't even work. <laughs> It, it just it doesn't make good art. It doesn't make good literature. But what actually is really powerful is when you have a fully realized, fully um, committed Christian worldview that shows itself naturally in the outworking of, of literature and the arts um, so that you will hear the music of Bach and that it's simply – you know, his, his Christian faith is imbued in it, in the order and the structure and the beauty of it, um, in the great poets – and I think what it comes to at the heart of it is that the imagination, the human faculty of imagination, is actually a mode of knowing. It is equal in its um, in its importance and its role to reason. And in fact, and this is something that, that Dr. Wards has recently spoken about, um, it is actually foundational because reason has to have something to reason about. But the imagination provides what reason can work with. It's a way of grasping the world. Yeah, I have a question along those lines. Uh, I'm seeing here where it, uh, the notes I have here uh, on you say that you're a regular speaker on imaginative and literary apologetics, which is basically what you're talking about right now. Uh, I'm wondering exactly what that means. Does that include, like, for instance, C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia novels or does it include the gospel according to peanuts or does it even include like an episode of the old tv series bonanza that has a moral lesson to it that's very christian even though there's no 
um, direct Christian references in it? Or is that kind of what you're talking about when you talk about literary apologetics, or am I missing this? No, I think you're getting it. Um, and especially I, I think you've got it because you're realizing that this includes engaging um, with literature and the arts that's not explicitly Christian. Because something that, that shows some aspect of the Christian worldview, like, for instance, I like to give the example of mystery novels. A mystery novel, even if written by an atheist, um, has certain premises that are that are foundationally Christian, which is to say that there there is a crime um, and that is wrong, and that we desire justice. And why do we desire justice? Because of the nature of the moral universe um, and the satisfaction that we get in seeing the the criminal brought to justice. This is a fundamentally Christian way of looking at the world. Now, wow. a Christian mystery novelist can bring that out maybe more powerfully. But that same worldview, if, if an atheist is writing a mystery novel and there is a, a crime and the criminal is brought to justice, that shows us the imprint of our maker. Wow. That Well, now I know why my wife is such a godly woman, because she reads mystery novels all the time. <laughs> and no, seriously, you know, she is, um, you know, um, very um, black and white and, you know, crimes need to be punished. People who do wrong. That's it. So oh, that's wonderful. She's uh, doing um, somersaults, I think. Um, <laughs> well, the reason well, I the reason I asked that question is I I grew up watching a lot of the old westerns on TV, like I mentioned, like Bonanza and Cheyenne and The Rifleman and a lot of those type of shows. And now I find myself watching them again on DVD as an adult, and I'm getting a whole different level out of these shows than I did when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I liked you know the shoot 'em up parts. But now as an adult, um, like understanding the moral messages behind these episodes, and most of them did have like a moral point to them that really is very Christian, even though they don't say it in that way. And it's kind of like, wow, this is neat to be able to get this out of these shows to see them in a whole different light than when I did when I was a kid. And I think that's an important insight, too, that I think one of the reasons that those kinds of works are have the impact they do is that the there's a certain amount that's left for the reader or the viewer to make the connection. I think sometimes that making the overt Christian connection can actually get in the way because it's, then it's easier for people to say, oh, well, that's just a churchy kind of thing as opposed to, oh, this feels right and this feels true. And then when you do hear that message in church, it resonates because you've been imaginatively prepared for it. Mm, excellent. Well, we are near the end of the show. Um, Dr. Ordway, can you give people um, a website or something that if they would like to learn more about the program or about you or get in contact with you? Well, I would definitely recommend anyone who's interested in transforming culture um, through apologetics, please, please do give us, give us a, a look. Um, the website is hbu.edu slash maa. So it's just for the MAA for Master of Arts in Apologetics. Um, and you can actually link through there to our faculty. You can contact me. I'd be more than happy to, to chat with people. Um, and I would really encourage you to, um, to, to take a look at that. Wonderful. Thank you, Holly Ordway, for being on Evidence for Faith. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Great. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That was good!